Welcome back to the Total Financial Podcast channel. This is Scott Whitehead and Mike Cepeda. We're back again to talk about part two of our premium financing educational series. With part one, we focused on the foundational aspects of premium financing. And in part two, we're going to dig far deeper into the complexity of this world and the complexity of premium financing. Mike, you and I have seen a ton of cases throughout the year. Some of these are relatively easy, some not so easy. In your mind, what what makes a financing case complex? Thanks, Scott. Uh, Happy to be back with you. You know, every, every case has its own unique challenges, which is part of the fun part of our business, frankly. Um, we're not out there with the Phillips head screwdriver every day turning this t- turning the same screw, right? Um, every case is unique and different and brings its own set of challenges that we're trying to solve. So I really enjoy that aspect of working on larger complex cases and how do we figure out the funding strategy that fits. You know, when it when it comes to premium financing cases, the cases that are you know more complex are certainly going to be the ones where available collateral is not what we would like to see, meaning it's something that is hard for a bank to go and get a letter of credit against or hard for a lender to accept as collateral. Those are the cases I find to be very tough and challenging. The other cases that are really tough is when the client situation really dictates that we ask the contract to do a lot for them. And we'll go through and do the education process with them around that and how the product works and do the stress testing and show them how it responds in different market conditions. Ultimately, it's their choice as far as how they want to move forward with the case. And we're there to help guide them through that. But I will see situations where the clients are, you know, they want to be very aggressive with it. And that's fine. But th- those are also tough cases because, as you know, we, we always get pulled in at year two, three, four, and five for the renewal phase. And if things aren't tracking the way that the client thought they would track, they're still going to come to us and be like, well, why isn't this working? <laughs> you helped me get into this plan. Um, so I think it's really important to you know document when you have those kind of conversations with clients and make sure that you're being as transparent as you can with them. Make sure that you are disclosing fully you know, the risks that are on the table for them. Those cases are, are the tougher ones to get. Clients that are great to work with are ones that understand risk. They understand leverage. And they've probably had some experience with life insurance already. Th- those are the cases that are tend to be easier to work with. Also, if you're working with a client's advisor that really does have control and the trust of the client, th- they can be a great resource to help educate and move the process along quickly. We you know what we never want to see is a case drag on for half a year, nine months, twelve months. Those those can be frustrating to work on. Certainly, the more control, the better relationship we have with the advisor, the more likely we're able to streamline the whole process. Absolutely. You know, you said managing risk. There's another word that we hear about in financing all the time, and it's the word arbitrage. Talk to me a little bit about arbitrage and what it means to a financing transaction, or what it means to you. Yeah, that, that that's a great point, Scott, because I, I do hear that a lot. It's something I often speak to to try to dispel this notion out there that there's this relationship between what we're illustrating the product at versus what the client's able to borrow the money for to fund the, fund the policy. If you can go and borrow money at 4% and you can illustrate a contract at 6%, I've seen advisors tell clients, well, we have a 2% positive arbitrage there. You know, Firstly, that's not how arbitrage works. And secondly, that's that's not even the true relationship because you have the, the cost of the lending at 4%. Even if you get a credit of 6%, you and I know that that's not actually what comes down to the client's bottom line. You have M&E and COI charges that come out. You may have asset-based charges 
on a policy that has a multiplier. Um, so that relationship doesn't really equate. But that that's the way that I hear it discussed about a lot. And it's a, it's a misnomer. I, I do try to educate against that. There, but there is arbitrage with these transactions. And it's, it's a really powerful concept that I don't think gets talked about enough. And that's really, what is the relationship between the client's retained capital that they're keeping invested and performing for them today versus what they can borrow money at? That cost relationship is not just they're earning 12% on this asset. There's no way that they're going to liquidate it today. If they were to liquidate it, you also have the loss opportunity costs and you also have transaction costs associated with that. So that 12% might really be 18. And if you can go borrow money today at 3 or 4%, that to me screams, this is a client that we want to have a really robust conversation with about borrowing money to take care of their insurance funding needs today. And then that also leads into the potential exit strategy down the road. That asset that's earning 12% for them today is probably not going to be earning 12% for them indefinitely. If it does, that's great. I want in on that, but that's often not the case. So we can think about an exit down the road, whether that be 5, 10, 15 years down the road, we can look at that to unwind the uh, the borrowing transaction. But that's that, that relationship, the clients retain capital, what they get to keep versus what they can borrow out today. To me, that that's really what arbitrage means when we're talking about third-party financing business. Really, it's almost that, that word, the opportunity cost that you use here. It seems like that is what drives a lot of these great financing transactions is that opportunity cost between what they can earn on their assets or on their business versus what they can borrow for and what in between the policy can do. That's right. Yep. So you mentioned the words exit strategy. And we've talked mm-hmm. about exit strategy a little bit in both this series and the previous series as well. It's important for these transactions to be able to have an exit strategy, which means we have to find a way to pay off that loan at some point. What do you think is the best way to do an exit strategy? Great question. Uh, multiple ways would be my answer. Um, and that's that's really when you're contemplating something that could be fairly far down the road, Scott. Um, you know, having optionality is always a plus. Would it be wonderful that, to use all or a large portion of the cash value from the policy to repay the loan? Yeah, that that would be great. That might not be the best option. So, to the extent that we can pay down the principal over time at some point, that's a good feature. To the extent that we can, you know, have the client pay some premium in during the funding stage and then borrow some on top of that. That also helps because you're also bur- un- un- unburdening the policy from a performance standpoint. The best and most successful transactions that I've seen go from you know the presentation to close to managing to unwinding phase has been through liquidity events that are outside the policy, and that that I think is really the best way to to plan and design these kind of cases. It's, it's, it would be a wonderful thing for the client and I think a cherry on the top of the whole plan if you were able to take money out of the contract to repay a portion of the loan and have the, have the policy run indefinitely with a you know high probability of it. Uh, you have to manage that, of course, like you would any other policy that's issued by that, that you're helping to manage. But the, the liquidity outside of the policy is really, I think, the key there, Scott. Yeah, I love the optionality there. A lot of times when I see designs, the first thing I'll do is, you know, I'll, I'll look down the design and I'll, I'll look for where's the next strategy? How are you paying off that loan? I'll also look for in the beginning of the loan, I'm going to look at the collateral as well and its relationship to cash value. Many times I see 100% of cash value go to collateral. 
there's very, very few lenders that allow that 100% of cash value go to collateral. What do you what do you see there? What's a common scenario there for you? Yeah, I mean, that, that gets back to one of our best practices. And I believe we touched on this in the first series, Scott, which is um, setting expectations with the client appropriately. So, you know, we routinely work with carriers that we've put business in place on and, you know, help procure low point letters. You know, all that is, is what is what's the policy cash value at the end of the year if, if we have a 0% return under current charges? How can we manage to that expectation on the front end? Certainly, you could just talk about it. That helps. I think it's better to help show it as well. So we show it by saying, well, we're going to show a 0% return ass- assumption in the first year, oftentimes the first two years in the design phase to help set that expectation for what the collateral needs are going to be early on. If we get some positive performance, then that's great. That's an easier conversation to go back to the client and say, hey, great news. Um, collateral came in $60,000 less than what we anticipated as opposed to saying, hey, we need an extra $60,000 of collateral this year. You know, that's always something I try to make sure I talk about is collateral. And, you know, we, we've kind of harped on it on both these series. And I think it's something that it's one of the pitfalls of most of the transactions that I see go south is A, they haven't properly calculated the collateral. B, they haven't stress test against a poor environment of collateral. And C, they haven't had that conversation. You may have a peak collateral year, and this is what it's going to look like. And I, I think for, for me, that's a huge piece of the puzzle. Scott, think about um, just real quick, because this is important. I know we've touched on it a lot lately. You know, If you were to go and get a low point letter from a carrier today in preparation for funding of the next year's premium, there's a very good chance that contracts maturing here at the end of the first quarter, early second quarter of 2020, you're not going to have any positive performance. Um, That's an unfortunate situation, but we see it. And we're dealing with some of those situations today. Getting that low point letter early on and kind of setting that expectation, I think is actually helpful for those cases because um, you you, you can go in expecting a tough conversation with a client, uh, but support, you know, having that supporting document there and knowing that you set that expectation up front that here's where we expect to be, and then you come in right at that number, that's helpful. If the markets rally and you get some credit and the collateral need is actually that is bad, then that's a, that's a positive. And I find that carriers, I'm sorry, lenders rather, are you know pretty open to working with you on that if you need to. Um, so we've definitely had conversations about getting an extension for uh, 15, 30 days around that settlement date just to help out a situation with a client that might otherwise you know, be in a tough spot and you have to move around assets to come up with the money that's needed. Another design thing, when I, when I get a competing design, I always go and I, and I like to see how the interest is calculated. I like to see if they're accruing or if they're not accruing, or you know, maybe they're paying five years of interest. I think that's a really important piece of how these designs work. Number one, you said optionality earlier, and I think it's important. What do you think about accruing interest on a policy and on a loan? Yeah, that, that's a case-by-case basis thing, Scott. You know, again, it does go back to the available collateral that the client has. And if they have substantial collateral, you know, let's just say that they already have a trust that's really well funded and they have a ton of collateral available, that could be a really good situation where the client can accrue it. The, the situations where it does work though in practice, and frankly, a, a lot of cases that, that I work on that are in place today, clients have some accrual that they've done. It's a little bit here or there. They had a, a tough year or whatever, where it was helpful for them to do that. So long as they can financially qualify and so long as the lender is 100% collateralized, it, it can be done. But I don't, I don't think it's a 
strategy to go out and sell premium financing designs to say, you can accrue all this loan interest and never have to pay any interest because that's not realistic. And I, I have unfortunately come across that in competition. And then we have to go back and reset expectations with the client and help educate them on you know the realities of how this can actually work for them. Yeah. You know, I've seen a lot of cases where, you know, I've seen the full accrual and I've seen it work. And then I've, you mm-hmm. know, we've placed cases that have worked incredibly well with full accrual. Usually they're younger ages, relatively healthy. For me, I like to see a little bit of skin in the game. Beyond the collateral, I like to see some type of interest payment. That goes back to a comment that you and I talked about in the first series about making the policy do too much heavy lifting. Speaking of accruals, you know, there, there's a whole other piece of the puzzle that goes behind these designs that when I know when you have the conversation, when I have the conversation, it's about the carrier approval because many carriers have different rules for premium financing. Some mm-hmm. will take accruals, some won't, some have different guidelines for income and face amounts and so forth. What are you seeing in the marketplace right now from the carrier standpoint? Yeah, that, that that's really interesting that you bring that up, Scott, because um, I, I do see that quite a bit. And unfortunately, a lot of advisors are, they run afoul of the carrier's guidelines. And when you do that and you submit a case and it's not in line with what they allow, you're just setting yourself up for trouble. That is certainly something to be well aware of because you're right, some carriers will will allow accrual. They'll allow accrual to, to a certain extent. If, you, if you're working with a foreign national case versus a US citizen, those rules can also differ. So you have to be very mindful about that as well. And it, it comes down to also the lender that you're working with and, and the carrier. So you have to take all of that into account. I, I, don't, I don't see as much of it today, but it's certainly something that's modeled out there and some carriers will support, but I, I would just encourage your, your your clients and your listeners that you know you have to check you have to check those guidelines with the carrier before you go out and show something to the client because you you risk you risk hurting your credibility with them if you're wrong about that. I've been through many cases where we've gotten all the way through the the underwriting, and Diana and her team have just knocked it out of the park, and all of a sudden they're going to hand me a premium finance design and. Oh, wait, that doesn't fit the carrier guideline. We need to have that up front, or we need to make sure that you go back and reset the expectation with the client that this is how you have to do it. And, and that's something that I know you guys do. That's something that we do. We work really closely with our carriers to make sure, you know, when a design comes in, you know, let's uh, let's make sure it works. Right. And the other piece of that too, Scott, is going to be the, um, the financial qualification for financing. Um, I've seen that as well, where the client's net worth and income don't fit don't check that box with the carrier. I mean, that's an automatic decline if you send in a formal app and you know the parameters don't fit. You have to be mindful of that as well. Some carriers are far more lenient about that. Um, Lincoln's one that they'll look at either income or net worth and the age of the client's gonna matter too. Younger the client, higher the income, better chance you have of getting the case through. You know, older clients, income's not so much of a, of a deal breaker, but it's gonna be the net worth qualification. So, you know, really looking for clients with net worth of at least 5 million, oftentimes. You can get down to the two and a half, but you're going to need some pretty high income thresholds to get a case through then. So I want to throw out a common question that I get, and I kind of mm-hmm. want to see how you, you're going to answer. So I'm going to play okay. the, uh, I got a guy game with you. Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah. So I got a guy, you know, 72-year-old male, mm-hmm. has a net worth 20, 20 plus million, mostly in real estate, wants to finance. It's a very common start 
that I get from a lot of my agents. Mm-hmm. Where do you go from here? That, that is a tough one, Scott. Um, I see that quite a bit as well. The, the challenge there is that clients in that, that age range, they're in a bit of a gray area, right? Because they're old enough where the COIs are substantial, where it's going to impact cash value accumulation inside the contract. But they're far too young. And if we're getting them a good offer, you know, likely too healthy to be considered um, death as an exit strategy as an appropriate path forward to unwind a case. So then it gets down to, well, the product that you pick and the design really needs to fit into what the long-term plan is with exiting that contract. Because if they live to be 92, you know, 20 years of interest rate exposure could be a lot. It, it could be completely fine for them. So you have to take really what the ultimate goal is for that client into consideration. And that, I feel, gives you the best opportunity for success with those cases. And you know, a whole life contract for somebody there might make sense. You might also find that those are the type of clients that say, I have a 92-year-old mom that's still living and I'm going to receive a significant inheritance in the next um, eight to 10 years. That could be used to exit the strategy, but they are you know, relatively young and healthy today. You know, lock in their insurability, give them the coverage that they need so that they can go ahead and have that policy in place for you know, the benefit their estate and their beneficiaries down the road. Those are the cases I see to be most successful, but, but they're tough because um, oftentimes advisors and clients want the policy to do too much for them. The expectation is too high and it just doesn't work. And then you find yourself doing a lot of blending, um, running very aggressive interest rate assumptions, performance assumptions, you know, maybe uh, you know, aggressive distribution designs. And that's a lot that has to go right for it to work economically from the policy standpoint. So, you know, having having again an exit outside of the policy in those situations is even more critical than than it typically otherwise would be. You have to check a lot of boxes on on the older ages ones. What do you do with that guy who goes, I got a ton of real estate. Uh, you know, he's super friendly on the real estate side, super friendly on the lending side. All his assets are in real estate. Where do we play on collateral on that, a case mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, th- those are tough, right? Because they, they are likely are already leveraged. And those, at, those properties are likely already tied to collateral, as collateral rather, for some of their other loans. So yeah, th- those are tough. So some of the things that we'll often ask for then, um, we have a really good estate planning fact finder, Scott, that's helpful in those situations where we ask for a really good breakdown of you know, what does the client have available today? And that's super informative for us and my team. When we get a case come in and we have a completed estate planning fact finder in front of us, we can begin to start identifying in advance of a call even you know, what strategies may be appropriate. We're still going to explore everything. But it'll help us really kind of narrow down that that initial conversation, and we can quickly kind of eliminate. Okay, well, third party financing, maybe it's not going to be a fit for this guy because of X, Y, Z. Uh, but we might want to look at a sale to a defective trust to free up liquidity and help to reduce the estate. Or private financing might be a good option there for someone like that, Scott. If we can, if that real estate's held in a real estate LLC, and maybe we can do a sale with some discounting, get cash flow out of the estate into a trust to help fund an insurance solution. Um, you know, those are all things that we would take into account and consider there. 
there's so many different ways to get the sale done. And that's that's what I love about working with, with you and your team. And we bring a case like this to you. We can sit down and have a conversation about and have some fun. And whether it's a premium finance case or something else, I, I think that's part of the, the fun of doing a case design. Because at the end of the day, we all want to get a policy if the client needs it, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we never, we never want to be in a situation where we feel like we're pressuring the client to do something. Um, ultimately, it's their money. I, I learned that very early in my career. It's, you know, you help guide the client, inform them, and they're going to make a decision that's right for them. It's not our job to tell them what to do. It's our job to help them figure out what's best for them. We can help guide them. We can ask the right questions, but you, you can't force a sale where there isn't one. And, you know, you and I were talking the other day, Sky reminds me of a situation that came up recently where... These advisors ended up losing a case because they were trying to force a sale and it was really a long-term care sale and they tried to force it into a premium finance sale. And it was really not appropriate at all for the clients. They, They didn't fit the financial qualifications for the carrier. The product that they showed was not on their approved, on the carrier's approved list for premium financing. And the design was really something that we never see in premium financing and being a pension max design. Those are all really good examples of what not to do. And unfortunately, this firm is kind of leading with, this is what we do. And oh, and by the way, we get special rates from this, um, one of the big third-party lenders in the marketplace, but they've only been in business for two months. There's no way that they're going and getting special rates from any lender. It's very difficult to do that unless you have scale. So there was just so much wrong with it. And they unfortunately took, which they they could have done a nice long-term care plan, for this couple and they tried to upsell it using premium financing. They weren't solving the issue that the client came to them with. And it, it you know, kind of, it blew up on them. Um, but unfortunately that's, I would say rightfully so it blew up on them because they weren't helping the client solve what it is that they needed solved. Well, at the end of the day, that's what your job, my job and the agent's job is mm-hmm. to get it right. And whether it's financing or not, that's key. I love I love stories like that. So recently, I have done some ginormous cases on financing where we had to go out and do a lot of work finding capacity in the marketplace for the amount of insurance that's in place. I know you've worked on a number of these large capacity cases. And most of the time that I work on these large capacity cases, they are on the financing mode. When you're talking 150, 200, 250 million of life insurance, talk about what capacity of the carriers means to these cases and what are some of the things that we need to be mindful of? Financial underwriting like that is, is both an art and a science. And you really need to be thoughtful and mindful when you go to market on those cases, Scott, from a product standpoint, from a capacity standpoint with the carriers, from a design perspective, there's a lot of moving parts, right? And we touched on a few of those already with every carrier is going to have some nuance to what cases are going to be appropriate for them, what funding is going to be appropriate, and possibly to what lender they would approve. um, Ideally, you're working with a quality lender and quality carriers, and that shouldn't be an issue. And oftentimes when we're going out and trying to get capacity in the market, Scott, that is the case. We're working with the big players in the marketplace. There's a lot of moving parts with that. And what we have found to be very successful is that when you have a plan in place and you have your conversations and do your due diligence with the carrier on the front end and you let them know exactly what you're doing, that's how you get to a successful conclusion. It's when you try to do everything in a vacuum, 
carrier by carrier is when I've seen issues arise. And that could always, that could be very awkward for everyone when you're trying to piece something together. Um, Because you you know this probably better than I do uh, uh, around how the reinsurance marketplace works. And you could, if you're not careful in those really large cases, you could end up, you know, really hurting yourself, but more so hurting the client with getting to where they want to be. So full disclosure, full cooperation um, with all of the parties is is what leads to a really good conclusion with those cases. It does. And I can tell you one of the things that we do at Total is when we ask that question about how much insurance do you have in place, you know, all of a sudden you're 50, 60, 70 million. We're going to start asking a lot more questions about, okay, who do you have coverage with? When did you buy it? Is it still in force? And we're going to want to go through each one of those because that becomes now part of the design. Because we may look at and go, well, normally I would design it at this carrier, but I don't want to go to this carrier because they don't have enough retention. They don't have enough capacity to start with. I'm going to start here and then I'm going to start working retention across the board. That goes back to us making sure that we properly profile with you the whole pieces of the case. And that's where when we get those cases, that's why I call you and you and I can have a discussion about, all right, how do we want to put this together? And then we bring in my underwriting team with Diana and Kimberly and we can kind of go, all right, this is this is what the picture looks like. Where do we start? It is kind of fun. Uh, those those large cases are kind of fun like that. We uh, we placed a couple of them last year where, you know, we had to go back multiple times to reinsurers and the carriers back to the reinsurers to recheck the treaty. But those are where working with partners like us and like Highland Capital, we can help guide those large cases. And usually the cases that we see, these are lifetime cases, right? You know, you don't get those a Lot. And you got to make sure you you knock them out and you got to do them right. Yep. hundred percent. I think we covered a lot in this podcast today, Mike, and we, we covered collateral and arbitrage and risk and what makes a good design. And there's so many moving parts to a financing transaction that's important to have a really good partner and have really good tools that you can put a good case together for your clients. That's something that Total Financial can do. And in partnership with our friends over at Highland Capital, we have some tools that can really help you. First, you know, you can call me directly at 1-800-989-7500. That's 1-800-989-7500. We also have Mike and his team have written a couple of really nice tools. We've got the stress testing piece that he's written. We've, they've got a uh, article on trust planning that is outstanding. They've got a state planning fi- fact finder that is outstanding. Um, they have a guide to premium financing that we can get to you. These are all tools that can help you start that conversation and continue that conversation. You can also visit us on the web at www.totalfinancial.com. That's www.totalfinancial.com. And with that, I want to say thanks to Mike. Thanks for having me, Scott. This has been fun. Yeah, this has been great. So thanks for joining us. And we invite you to listen to our other podcast episodes on the Total Financial Podcast channel. Federal income tax laws are complex and subject to change. Anything discussed in this episode is based on current interpretations of the law and is not guaranteed. Highland Capital Brokerage employees are not engaged in the practice of law and are not acting as legal or tax advisors to clients. The information provided is intended for general information purposes only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual. 
It is suggested that you consult with your tax, legal, and or financial services professional regarding your individual situation. The views expressed may not necessarily reflect those of Investicorp Incorporated securities by licensed individuals offered through Investicorp Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered through Investicorp Advisory Services Incorporated, a SEC registered investment advisory firm.